This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled Sex and Sacrament, recorded September 20th, 1992, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, our topic this morning is sacraments, or what are sacraments? What is a sacrament? The word sacrament comes from the Latin root. And its original meaning had the idea of a religious oath that you would take, something that would bind you. You would take an oath to do this or not to do that or whatever, and then you're bound by this oath. Later in the Middle Ages, it uh, accumulated all sorts of cosmological meanings. A sacrament was a, a combination of a material activity or sign that had a spiritual effect. And then in the Catholic Church, there are at least traditionally seven great sacraments. Other times, other the periods in the Catholic Church, there have been as many as 30. Uh, it's changed over the years, and the meaning of the word has evolved. But originally it meant this idea of somehow <clears throat> taking a, a very solemn, sacred oath. And what happens when we take a solemn, sacred oath? To take a solemn, sacred oath is in a certain sense to surrender your own will, to surrender your own selfish motivations. So if I took an oath before God, for instance, never to drink wine, then I'm bound by that oath. And then it doesn't matter in my life whether I want to drink wine or I don't want to drink wine. And if I maintain my oath, then I go through life and situations come up where I may be tempted to drink wine. Selfishly, my selfish motivation, my little wants and desires and so forth, say, oh, you should have a glass of wine. But I say, no, I took an oath to God, I'm not drinking wine. Conversely, it may be an oath to do something that you don't want to do. I don't know if St. Francis actually took an oath to serve lepers, but he purposely set out to serve lepers because they repulsed him. So he made this his practice, and just for that reason. Whether he formally did this or not, in some sense he vowed to God, he made a vow to God in his heart that he was going to serve lepers, this was going to be his path. And then it wasn't a question whether he liked serving lepers or not. And as he served lepers, he found actually, as he described it, that God converted this repulsion into the most delicate and tender sweetness. Through the practice, this is what he learned. So we might say that a sacrament or any uh, sacred activity is a selfless activity. And uh, a profane activity is a selfish activity any profane activity. A profane activity springs from your own uh, personal selfish desires or aversions. It has I in the center. I want this, uh, I don't want that. And this is why uh, much of our lives is uh, we lead uh, in a profane way. We're always, I is always at the center of uh, whatever we're doing. Where, where we want to go to lunch, what sort of job we want to have, what sort of car we want to drive. It's, it feels almost natural to us. 
This is one of the difficulties about a spiritual path. We almost take it for granted that this is the way things have to be. A sacred activity doesn't come from this I, this self, what this I, self, wants or doesn't want. A sacred activity comes from a selflessness that is complete and content and joyful. It isn't done to get something or to avoid something. It's done to express something. Notice all profane activity assumes an unhappiness, a discontent. If you want something or you don't want something, you're unhappy. There's a little distress there. There's a little anxiety. There's a little sense of something lacking. Otherwise, why would you want something? If you are content, if you are full, then there's nothing lacking. Then there's no reason to do anything to get. So the only reason to do is to express. So sacred activity is a an expression of something that's already there, where profane activity is a striving to get something that isn't there. So a, a sacrament, we could say in a certain way that a spiritual path is really about sacralizing all of life, turning all of life into a sacrament, making all of life a sacrament. Now, it's easy to say, oh, well, I'll just make all my life a sacrament. But actually, how do you go about doing that? And what, uh, in specific uh, terms, what is a sacred activity as opposed to a profane activity? Or better yet to ask the question, what makes any activity sacred rather than profane? In very concrete, detailed, um, or as detailed as we can get, uh, meaning here. And we could look, for instance, at Japanese culture, and we see a very good example of <clears throat> taking ordinary profane activities and sacralizing them. Actually studying the activity, undertaking the activity as a spiritual practice to make it a sacrament. And the one that I know the most about is uh, archery, for instance. We have a little book in the library called Zen and the Art of Archery, which I highly recommend. And in the practice of Zen, the performance of archery is outwardly, physically, uh, the same as any form of archery. There's a bow, and there's an arrow, and there's a target, and you try and hit the target. What makes a Zen archer, a uh, or the Zen archery, a sacrament, and a bow hunter who's just hunting deer, what makes that a profane activity? What distinguishes them? Well, if we just take our four basic principles of the spiritual path, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender, and apply it to the activity, we can begin to see how you would actually make an activity like archery into a sacrament. First of all, if you go study with a Zen archer, a Zen master, your full attention is required. It's not like, for instance, being a businessman or woman these days, going to play golf with your colleagues. 
where you go out on the golf course and you're talking about business and then you stop and take a swing at the golf ball and uh, follow along and make some business deals and so forth. You don't go to a Zen uh, archery master and sit around the archery hall talking about business and chatting away and so forth. It requires your full attention. The very first step. Second, it requires a commitment. In fact, that original meaning of sacrament had to do very much with this commitment. You cannot convert archery into a sacrament by trying it a couple times here and there. Zen archery is a rigorous practice. You have to be very dedicated. You have to be very committed to making this into a sacrament. So, commitment is a primary principle of this activity. Attention and commitment. Then you have to practice detachment. You'll be very frustrated during the course of a Zen archery training. At least the fellow who wrote this book was. He got very frustrated. Some days he didn't want to do it. Some days he was all excited to do it. He had his all sorts of his own theories about what archery was like or what the practice was that he would develop that his master just ignored. His mind was working away like crazy, full of expectations of what would happen. All this you have to be detached from. You're just doing the practice. To make an activity a sacrament and all these three things require a certain, uh, in a relative sense, exercise of will. But finally, we might better put it, how to discover that it's a sacrament. Because at least in this fellow's experience with Zen archery, he discovered the sacred nature of archery, of this particular activity, which is the sacred nature of any activity. And that is that it happens selflessly. At one point in his practice of Zen archery, he was a professor in Tokyo, or Kyoto, one of the big cities, and he left uh, the big city for the summer and went off to the seashore. And so he was not practicing with his Zen master every week, and he was practicing on his own. And he discovered a little uh, gimmick whereby he could hit the bullseye every time. And he was so pleased with himself, and he couldn't wait to get back in the fall to show his Zen master that now he could hit the bullseye every time. And he got back, and the first day he said, let me show you what I can do. And he lined up on the target and let go of the arrow, and sure enough, it hit the bullseye. And the Zen master looked at him, turned his back, which is like a, a, an absolute rejection, and stormed out of the hall. And he was aghast, <clears throat> and the Zen master wouldn't see him anymore. And finally intervened with some friends and said, please take me back. What did I do wrong? And his friends talked to Zen Master and said, I, I won't take him back. He cheated me. And finally they convinced him to take this guy back that he was just this dumb Westerner who didn't understand. And so he had compassion, he took him back. And then he went back to the grind of just practicing, you know, practicing, just letting these arrows go. And one day, as he was drawing the bow, and he pulled it back, the arrow just went. 
just went. He didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't willed. And for the first time, the Zen master's face lit up, and he congratulated him, said, ah, very good. And then, of course, there was no trick. He couldn't do it again the next time. But he practiced more, and then it happened again. And then it started to happen more frequently and more frequently. So what he'd learned to do, or perhaps we should say unlearned to do, was to act from this selfish, grasping, wanting center that wanted to hit the target, that wanted the master's approval, that wanted all these things. And when he had thoroughly unlearned that, when that had been exhausted, when that had been surrendered, then the arrow just flew. Then the activity was sacred. It had that quality of spontaneity, of not wanting, not grasping, not looking to the future, not looking to the past, just happening, just that expression. There are all sorts of, in, in Japan particularly, all sorts of activities are turned into sacred activities in this way. Flower arranging, <clears throat> the tea ceremony. They all require the application of these four principles. Can you imagine a Japanese tea ceremony where the participants aren't giving their full attention to the ceremony? Can you imagine them doing the ceremony in front of a TV, for instance? Can you imagine uh, doing a Japanese tea ceremony without having this sort of commitment to it? Uh, just occasionally, yeah, let's have a Japanese tea ceremony. I'm sure Americans have done that. Or without a detachment, so that in the middle of a Japanese tea ceremony, you say, uh, I'm kind of bored with this. Let's do something else. Let's get a pizza. If you don't apply those, you'll never get to the point of doing the Japanese tea ceremony where it just happens, where that surrender takes place. Then you see and you appreciate the Japanese tea ceremony not as getting the best tea in the world, you know what I mean? It's just what it is. It itself is just the expression of the Tao, of Buddha nature just as it is. We might say that actually all activity, truly speaking, is already sacred. But we profane it by sticking in the self. We mar it. Not ultimately, but in a relative sense. We're constantly interfering and so marring the activity of the world. So in a certain sense, to make an activity a sacrament is to simply cease to be making it profane. Now, an activity like Zen archery, or rites and rituals, by the way, this applies to rites and rituals in any tradition. If it's a Eucharist, the Mass, it's done with <clears throat> attention, commitment, detachment, and if you're Mother Teresa, you experience this surrender, this communion, which is the name of that particular ritual, with God. If you go to a Mass, 
and you're distracted by, uh, you know, thoughts about your uh, business, how your business is going, and you're not paying attention, you won't experience this. It'll be just a dead ritual for you. You'll go through it because it's the proper thing to do. If you're not at, at that moment detached from the concerns of the world, worldly concerns and so forth, you can't experience this. If you're not committed to it, if you drop in once in a while and have communion, uh, chances are it'll be sort of novel for you, probably kind of absorbing, and you'll, you'll smell all the incense and see all the robes and say, oh, this is really wonderful. Gee, I should go to church every Sunday. If you do that, and you're not committed, you'll go for a few Sundays and it'll get boring to you again, and you'll start saying, oh, well, I don't know. On, on Meet David Brinkley this morning, this important politician, I better stay home and see that, you know? It's only through the constant repetition, the commitment to it. Now, all these activities, rituals, the archery, and so forth, are, in a certain sense, constructed activities. Although, of course, there are archers who have no idea of uh, uh, the, possible, the sacred possibilities in what they do. If you wanted to study Zen archery, it's not something that you just naturally know how to do, shoot bows, or you would necessarily naturally do. You go and you learn the activity, and in the process of learning the activity, uh, the sacred nature of it reveals itself to you. The same with rites and rituals. People aren't born knowing how to perform a mass or participate in a mass. They have to learn that. There are some activities, however, more basic activities in our lives that we do anyway. These are activities that spring from our basic drives. And sex and eating are two very strong, good ones. These are activities in a certain sense that humanity has to do. Everybody has to eat at some point. And humanity, not every individual has to engage in sex, but humanity has to engage in sex if it's going to continue. And it's interesting because in all spiritual traditions, both food and sex are seen in some sense as problems. There are lots of uh, rituals and vows and precepts surrounding these two activities. Fasting and diet restrictions and all that are a prominent part of many, many traditions. And all the codes and the restrictions and so forth around sexuality are a prominent part of all spiritual traditions. Why? What's the meaning of this? In point of fact, two of the most basic reasons upon which the, this delusion of self is based are these biological drives for food and for sex. We identify with them very strongly. There's a tremendous attachment and so they're, in a certain sense, a tremendous distraction from a spiritual path. They bind us to this sense of self very, very strongly. So there are various ways then you can approach this. How do you convert these activities into sacred activities? Now, very often what's recommended is to really reduce them, either to cut them out or reduce them to a minimum. So in many traditions, there's the 
the vow of brahmacharya, as it's called in India, of celibacy. Monks and nuns and priests in the West uh, and all through India and in some uh, uh, many Buddhist orders, not all, it's considered extremely important to be celibate. The drasticness of the anecdote matches the strength of the allure of the distraction. And it's a very effective anecdote. It works. That's why it's recommended so often. The same thing with food. In many traditions, uh, a monk or a nun or whatever reduces their diet to something very simple. It's, no, it's just fuel to keep going. Or, or extended periods of fasting are recommended. And so you just leave it behind. It doesn't distract you. It doesn't pull you. It doesn't uh, keep feeding and reinforcing this sense of self, which out of which then uh, activity starts to come. Not, uh, not everyone can do this, as we said, however. And not everyone needs to. More difficult in a certain sense, and certainly more complex, is to try to take these activities and make of them sacred activities. More difficult here than taking up an activity like archery or, or uh, going to mass, which are activities that you purposely take up with the idea that they are uh, sacred activities and you're going to learn through the process of doing them for yourself what makes them sacred. Here's stuff, here are activities that are woven throughout your ordinary life, exert tremendously powerful uh, influence on your life. Very difficult to control. <clears throat> but if you're going to make uh, everyday life into a spiritual path, that's precisely what you have to do. Now, let me say one thing here from the get-go, from a mystical point of view. There is nothing wrong with sex in itself. There is nothing wrong with eating or food in itself. Anything that there, any more than there's anything wrong with archery in itself. It's not the nature of the activity. It's the way we perform it that profanes or sacralizes. All the uh, injunctions to cease from this activity from an esoteric point of view, aren't to cease from them because the activities themselves are evil. It becomes interpreted that way exoterically in traditions. So how would you approach, then, eating or sex with this idea of transforming it? Well, let's take sex. The same thing applies as to any ritual. You apply the four fundamental principles. Attention. You don't treat sex casually. When you're going to have sex, you give it your full attention. Your motive for engaging in sex is not primarily selfish gratification. It's to learn something something very, very important. You give it your full attention. There's a great mystery in sex. 
which you will never discover if you treat it superficially. Your intention, the first step. Difficult to do in this culture because there's a lot of superficial sex around. Not just people doing things, but in the atmosphere. There are billboards and television commercials and uh, advertisements and so forth. And clothing and dress and flirtations, and it just sort of permeates our culture to a high degree. It seems to be very casual. People take it very casually. Second commitment. Usually, usually, 99% of the time, commitment means commitment to a partner. A person. It doesn't necessarily have to. It's not an ironclad law. But it means commitment in that moment. Total commitment to what's going on in that moment. And commitment to looking at sex always this way. So it would be possible you would meet a stranger, you know, in the night and could still have sacred sex. It's difficult because most people in that situation are looking for gratification, immediate gratification. It's also tremendously helpful if both partners have this attitude towards sex. If only one has it, you still, it's your practice. But if both have it, then it's even more concentrated. Detachment. Now, that sounds funny when you talk about relation to sex. Detachment means when you're engaged in sex, you're engaged in sex. It's being detached from other concerns and considerations and so forth. I'll tell you a, a personal story. And this was when I was quite young, late teens. And I was just exploring sex. And I was sleeping with this woman who was quite beautiful. And I was very impressed. I mean, that I could, that she was interested in me. And she was really interested in me. She was sort of the one who seduced me. And, and she chatted all through it. She talked about all sorts of various things. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be, I don't think she, it was because she was bored with me because she, you know, wanted to continue this relationship. I was flabbergasted. It ruined it. I mean, here she was very beautiful and all this, but I, you know, it was very hard to get into it, so to speak. She was not, her mind, you know, whatever had come into her mind, she wasn't detached from her own uh, mind and so forth. It would just drift off with this and that. Wherever her mind pulled her, you know, Right there, no matter what she was doing, that's the way it would go. That's what detachment means. It doesn't mean to suppress other thoughts if you're engaged in sex and other <clears> thoughts <throat> arise. You don't feel bad and guilty and so I, I shouldn't be thinking about anything else. They arise and they pass away, and it's just like the meditation. You bring your attention back to what you're doing. And it's very important to watch, not just in sexual activity, the physical activity, but in the whole uh, movement of sexuality through your life, to watch and to be detached from this the sense that sex is, is there for your personal gratification. 
So that, let's say you're walking down the street and you're attracted to somebody. You know, okay, here's sexual attraction. It's arising. You don't have to associate it with what's going to make you happy. You don't have to think automatically, oh, if I could only be with that person, I would be happy. Or if I can't be with that person, I'm going to be a little unhappy. That will, in a certain sense, happen out of conditioning. But this is what you want to pay attention to. And this is what you want to be detached from. So that you're not relating to people out of a sexual motivation. You're not pursuing a relationship, a person, because of a wanting sexual gratification. And you're not shunning someone else because there's no possibility of sexual gratification over in that corner. It doesn't mean desire won't arise, it'll pass. It may arise and hang around for a while and then pass. This is what you're watching. This is why you have to exercise detachment and commitment to the practice to watch all this. Then when you get to the actual activity, what happens? If you've been doing this practice, if you've been paying attention, if you are committed, and if you uh, can exercise detachment, then there's a possibility that the same thing that happens in the archery practice will happen to you. Just the way the arrow flew. The sexual experience will become a transcendent experience for you. You won't be personal. It'll have this sense. And the reason why sex is so powerful is because even at the physical, biological level, it has this nature. And we can experience it, you know, just all the time. It, it, it like seems to be taking us over. It's so strong and powerful. And if you let it, ha if you let it do that fully and completely within that framework, it is an expression of divinity, very clear cut, which is both psychological, spiritual, biological, everything all wrapped into one. It's so strong that actually, truly speaking, most people are afraid of it. That moment of surrender. They enjoy the pursuit, they're attracted, they get them into bed, and guess what? How many of you have felt, well, it's a little disappointing. It's not quite what it's supposed to be cracked up to be. Huh? And if you watch that and pay attention, you'll see that it's not the other person's fault. It's not that sex is overrated or something. You'll see there's something in you that holds back a little bit. It doesn't want to let go completely. This is why sex is such a a tremendous source of suffering in our lives, truly speaking. We think of it as, a, in a profane sense, as something that's very pleasurable. But if we examine it, it causes tremendous amount of suffering. And never, or only rarely, seems to live up to what it's supposed to deliver. We invest all this energy, time, thought, emotion in it. And for that reason, very often we 
continue to pursue it. Well, it was not the right person. Got to find Mr. Right or the prince or the princess or whatever. And we, we, we're missing the, the reason here. This is difficult. And if you start to do this practice, and as I said, this isn't just a practice you wait around until uh, you get into the bedroom to do. You do this practice whenever you notice anything sexual happening in your life. That, that's a signal. Pay attention. Okay. Right, here's my chance to make of this a sacrament. Start paying attention to it. Be committed to that practice. Be detached from the fruits of your action. The results, you know, whether you're going to end up in bed with somebody or not, or whether you're attractive or not, or whether they're attractive or not, or, you know, all these things that we suddenly come in that self, 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 I in the center of it all. You just want to watch how this works, what happens. So this is what our precept is about. And I would say um, that really, probably our precept, which now reads to make a sex a sacrament, should read to strive to make sex a sacrament. To indicate that this is an ongoing sort of practice. You just don't decide tomorrow night, okay, baby, let's make sex a sacrament tonight. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe to strive not to profane sex. Or, or very, very well put. Or strive not to profane it. If, in fact, that's even better. If you strive not to profane it, it itself will reveal its sacramental nature. So will eating. So will any other activity you do. On the other side of celibacy is the Taoist practices. Yes, then you can go and actually uh, use sexual energy and, and learn to control it and use it and incorporate it into a practice. Uh, that's a, a little bit different thing than I'm talking about. And that's a whole other subject. Uh, and that's a very rigorous practice. And that's probably, uh, it's probably easier to become a master Zen archer than to do that practice. There's a lot of, uh, I know there are a lot of popular books and teachings around, you know, uh, how to how to turn your sex life into a tantric practice and six easy lessons and stuff. It just cannot be done in six easy lessons. It's an extremely rigorous practice that requires a lot of preliminary kinds of meditation and uh, whatnot. Uh, Tibetans who, of course, uh, who have developed this practice perhaps to the highest degree, uh, at least that we know of, rarely talk about it publicly or in front of, you know, novice sorts of groups. And they always insist that, uh, yes, they'll admit that this is. There are sexual tantric practices, and they're considered some of the highest practices in the Tibetan tradition. But you go through years of practice. And I once heard a Tibetan uh, lama say, uh, I don't understand. People are so interested in, in, you know, the sexual aspects of our tantric practices. He said, if you're so interested, he said, to get to these practices, you know, it takes 10 or 15 years of intensive, intensive meditation practice. If you're interested in sex, go down to a singles bar. It's much quicker. You'll find somebody, you know. Uh, why would you be interested in Tibetan Buddhism for sexual reasons, you know? And uh, I know a lot of people are sort of intrigued and, and fascinated by Tibetan Buddhism for those reasons. But if you're just looking to get laid, you're going to do much better off going to a singles bar than hanging around a, a legitimate, you know, Tibetan uh, Sangha. Any other questions? 
when you take the vow of following the precepts, is that kind of a, an oath and a sacrament to It is. It is. I'm trying to indicate here a use of the word sacrament that has to do with specific activities. Because again, if once you, you can say that in a certain sense everything is a sacrament or everything could be a sacrament if we uh, saw it aright and if we lived it right. <clears throat> but then if you start spreading the word around too much, it loses its, its specific sorts of meanings. And a more specific meaning, a way to, to work with this instead of just having a philosophical idea about it, is to pick an activity like sex and say, okay, this is something in my life if it's in your life. Now, how would I sacralize this? Or, right now, it's to recognize this is a profane activity in my life. What would it mean to stop profaning this activity? For instance, a suggestion I would make, something I did, was to first just really basically cut it out of my life. In my case, there was I had one exceptional woman I was seeing, infrequently. And it wasn't a lifelong vow of celibacy, but I thought, well, gee, I'm spending so much energy and so much thought and imagination and everything is going into not necessarily the physical acting out of sex, but sexuality, the play of sexuality between people. Do you know what I mean? That having lunch with somebody and all the sexual stuff that's going on, it never necessarily gets manifested. So this was a vow, not so much a mechanical vow not to do the dirty deed, but a vow to say, look, I'm not going to pursue this when it comes up. I'm just going to watch it. It wasn't a vow that I thought sex was evil and I was going to cut out of my life. It was a way of just interrupting business as usual, which was profane business. And that's a very good first step. Interrupt business as usual. And that allows you to start to study the nature of what's happening here, to pay attention to it, to be mindful of it, rather than just to be swept along with it. Do you know what I mean? And then, step by step, you can start trying to apply these principles I talked about. Commitment and detachment and ultimately surrender to that activity. And then the activity itself, you know, reveals itself as a sacred activity. It's not even really the activity that's transformed. It's your experience of it that becomes transformed. But it's something, this is quite practical and concrete. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. It's not a philosophical problem. What's sacred and what's not, and you know, couldn't everything be sacred and all that. This is something to, uh, a teaching to take and try it in your life and see if it works. See what happens. So to make anything a, a sacrament would require that sort of commitment and attention and detachment, you know, to, to that activity, to really single it out. And this is what I recommend is when you are on a spiritual path, instead of trying to uh, start by saying, well, I'm going to make my whole life a sacrament, which is a, a huge order, pick one or two or three activities <clears throat> in your life to work with. Maybe it's gardening, you know, or whatever it could be. Experiment, take, you know, one or two things that you can actually really do, that you can remember to do, and that you can... Uh, that itself it will be a signal to you that this is now going to be a sacred activity. If you took gardening, then every time you walked into your shed and picked up your trowel, you have a conscious, oh, I'm about to engage in a sacred activity. You don't even know what that means yet if you're starting this. Do you see what I mean? 
you're going to let the activity reveal to you what it means. But the minute you say that to yourself, oh, suddenly it's not your pulling out weeds and your mind's wandering all over here. You're paying attention. Do you know what I mean? And then if it's gardening, you're, you don't just garden when company's coming over and pull out a few weeds and forget it the rest of the year. You pay, you know, gardening becomes an activity you're committed to. And you start to do that and the activity starts to be transformed for you. And then these insights happen. And then truly your experience changes, is transformed. And it's once you know what it means to have the arrow release itself, then you know in any other activity what, what makes it sacred. I mean, you have a glimpse of it, you know, and you feel for it. It's the same principle at work, the same sense of spontaneity, of, of, of something happening without the self being in the way. You recognize it. this, this is sacred activity. Is it helpful in sacralizing an activity to have some sort of ritual or invocation or prayer associated with, for example, like grace before meals? Yes, I think it could be. Very much so. In fact, a grace before meal is supposed to serve that function. <clears throat> you know, it makes you stop for a moment and pay attention to what you're doing. Uh, our little grace that uh, we say here is all about sacrifice. It's an appreciation of everything's on your plate as a sacrifice, you know? So this is being mindful. You know, I think it would be Perhaps more difficult. I think it'd be very interesting to try in this culture, but perhaps more difficult. Say grace before sex. Yeah, but it might be very interesting. It might be a very interesting idea. There is one, not quite an example directly of that, but that I can think of, and that is at least as far as I know, and I didn't grow up in a Jewish background, but the Sabbath, at least some Jews take it as a, a, an evening that's a sacrament that includes a sacramental meal and sacramental sex. And so the whole uh, evening is sort of designed, you know, that this is this is how the evening is going to unfold. Mm -hmm. And again, you see, in a certain sense, it's funny, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, something to perform. So perhaps, you know, it's a remnant of this idea that sex could really be a ritual, you know, a sacred ritual. Uh, the metaphor of Shabbat is as a bride. Mm -hmm. And the bride is... A, is called Shekhinah, and Shekhinah enters the house. Ah, on the, on the Sabbath? On, mean, on yeah. Friday night. Right. And it's the union of, of Ainsof and Shekhinah, of the divine presence and the, and the feminine. Yes, yes, that imagery of the Ainsof and the Shekhinah uh, and the union is uh, very prominent in Kabbalism, I don't know, throughout Judaism, and it's also a very prominent image in many spiritual traditions. This is the union of uh, the Mahamudra, in Tibetan tradition, there's a god and goddess sitting in union. And this is the union of emptiness and form and of uh, skillful means and compassion. It's always that sense of the union of the whatever is dualistic, you know. Uh, well, what's beautiful in that tradition is it's, it's the man and wife in their own home that symbolize this divine union. And this is sort of what I'm driving at. It begins with an understanding of the symbolism. But if you really carry it out all the way, it ceases to be a symbolism and it's the reality. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? When there's true selfless sex, then you're not standing in for Ensof and Shekhinah. You are Ensof and Shekhinah. And so <clears throat> you've even gone farther than a symbolism can take you, you know? Yeah, that's wonderful.
Okay, well, if there are no further questions, we'll bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay around and have tea and check out the library and just chat or whatever you want to do.